0: Hi, we're Katie, Jessica, and Shannon, and this is Boy Problems Podcast, a community focused on supporting families navigating substance use disorder. We hope sharing our stories, introducing you to experts, and answering all the questions you have no one else to ask will help you better navigate your story.
1: Through our partners' recoveries, we found each other and formed our own squad, one we know is so valuable to how we manage this disease in our relationships. So we started bringing a microphone to our hangouts to extend our conversations to others just like us. When you're here, you're not alone.
0: If you're listening, you probably know we met at a family support group, and our bonds have grown stronger through sharing our stories and supporting each other. When we think about the thing that's helped us most, it's that. So we'd like to extend that community to you. If you're feeling like no one understands what you're dealing with, or you're looking for a community of like-minded individuals, consider joining us for our virtual support group. For details, visit Recovering2.com. We know what you're going through, and we're here to help. We're recovering too.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Boy Proms Podcast. We have a very special episode today. We are so excited. Eli Harwood is a licensed therapist, author, and educator who has more than 17 years of experience helping people process their early traumas and develop secure attachment relationships with their children and partners. Eli and his adult child of an alcoholic and has three children, one husband, one cat, and an extraordinary number of plant babies. Eli, thank you for being with us. Okay Thank you
3: so much. I'm so glad to be here. So um,
2: how... I came across Eli on, uh, so many of you know that I have a three and a six year old, um, and I came across your, uh, Instagram, Eli, you have a really wonderful following and you just share so many wonderful tips about children and how to deal with anger and the attachment style. Um, which I would love for you to kind of tell people like what that is. And I'm so nervous about, um, like a uh, sexual abuse for children. And you've mm-hmm. hit on that multiple times and mm-hmm. you've shared resources and like great books. And so you are just a wealth of knowledge and we have so many moms and parents that follow us. And so I was so excited when you accepted to be on with us because I think you can really help um, mm-hmm. our audience who are dealing with really traumatic things that deal with like their children too. So I'm excited.
3: Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Awesome.
2: So can you tell us like, what... Tell us about you. Like, what is secure attachment style? Like, I think that
3: that was a little bit hard to get in the beginning. So attachment is basically the study, like the attachment science or the attachment research is the study of the way that the child caregiver relationship evolves and what happens in that relationship affects the optimal or suboptimal development of a child's self and emotion regulation. So we don't, we aren't a creature that develops separately from others. We we develop in relationship and we're born entirely helpless, right? Like there's no story of like a newborn baby who like clawed their way through the woods and found something to eat and survive. You cannot survive as a human being without a caregiver, right? So the idea is that we have this instinct or this drive towards connection. And it goes both ways. It goes from care, caregiver to child and child to caregiver, <clears throat> And the way that relationship develops either leads to what we would call a secure pattern of relating or an insecure pattern of relating. And then there's a fourth category, which we would call a unpatterned or a disorganized attachment experience. Okay. So the secure experience is very simple. So I want everyone to hear that because I think in the modern world, it can be very overwhelming. It's like I'm supposed to like, you know, make sure that my child's plate has all of these different omegas and blah, blah, blah. And I'm supposed to make sure that there's, you know, the right colors in their room. And what's their sensory type? I mean, yes, there are complexities. However, in attachment terms, the secure child has a caregiver who is attuned, which means they have the capacity for emotional sensitivity. So a caregiver who can pick up on the emotional world of the child and is responsive so I hear you cry I pick you up I can tell you're angry I calm my own body in your presence I help you feel heard I am noticing what you feel and I am being responsive right and that also plays out not just with negative emotions but positive emotions right so you know if your child comes in and they're like I got it
2: eight out of fifteen
3: Right. There's <laughs> they, they need you to have joy about that, even if what's happening for you is you're like a not of 15. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> what I was looking for. Right. Like th- that you would join them in their joy as well as in their pain. OK, and you create kind of a, a trusting rhythm between you and your child when you have a secure encounter. Okay, And what happens in relation to that is quite incredible across the lifespan. So we have all of this longitudinal research, which means we didn't just study What happened at one stage, we study what it meant at the next one and the next one and the next one. And over across the span of, usually these studies are about 30 years long. So we're really looking at how does this early relationship affect development and how does that affect all sorts of other lifelong outcomes? And secure attachment is correlated with greater success in school, um, less behavioral problems. And in the long run, it's even correlated with better health outcomes, like healthier cardiovascular responses. (laughs) And that's likely about stress. So when you have a caregiver who's attuned, compassionate, responsive, connected to you, your little nervous system doesn't have to work as hard. It doesn't send out as much adrenaline, right? There's not as much of a stress hormone response. Now, the other category is insecure experience. And that has two subcategories. So that's people who have an avoidant pattern and then people who have what's called an ambivalent pattern. And I'm going to talk in the terms of the infant research. There's research on multiple domains. And so some of these things get confusing because you'll hear people say like anxious attachment. Okay. Well, when we study infants, we actually call that it anxious avoidant and anxious ambivalent. And they're two separate categories and they're both anxious, but one doesn't appear anxious on the outside. And one does. So there's a confusion around it. So I just, clarifying that I, my kind of obsessive research has been around the developmental psychology. That is sort of the vein that I trust the most and I think has the most data and the most reliability.
1: What age range is that then?
3: So the specifically the study that we look to the most, that that's been the most validated is called the strange situation. And that study is done on 12 to 18 month olds. Okay. Okay. So these other two insecure categories insecure avoidant, insecure ambivalent, also both called anxious. Um, The avoidant child grows up with a caregiver who doesn't know how to emotionally attune. So either they believe emotions are behaviors. And so they correct the child every time they cry, right? Don't cry. Don't, don't throw a fit, right? Or they get really uncomfortable when emotions are in the room and they just sort of shut down and disappear or look away from the child. But what happens is the child learns there is no reason to reach out to somebody else when I'm in pain because I will not be received. And this is by 12 months of age. That's wild. Yeah, Yeah, that they've internalized that pattern. They've internalized my caregiver is not reliable to help me regulate when I'm dysregulated. And they've learned that the best way to maintain closeness with their caregiver is not to express emotion. This caregiver, this this caregiver who has their own avoidance is so uncomfortable with emotion that they pull away when their child emotes. And so that makes a child feel more scared, right? So by shutting down their emotional needs, the child is keeping the caregiver closer. And I want to share that because a lot of people think that avoidant attachment means that you want to be attached less or you aren't interested in attachment. And that is not what it means. It means, I shut down my inner world because I'm afraid that it's a burden. And if I bring it out to you, you will go away. I am trying to maintain closeness with you by preventing vulnerability from me to you. Okay. Then there's the ambivalent category. And the ambivalent category is that the child's caregiver is in in some way inconsistent. So they are available at times, but not at other times. And this is really key when we talk about addiction. When someone is in an active, ongoing addiction cycle, right? They go in and out of their relationship to that substance. And so there may be periods of time when they are attuned and connected and the child experiences that from them. And then they're back on whatever and they're gone. And so the ambivalent child has learned they have to be vigilant, mm-hmm. So they are constantly scanning their caregivers and their attachment figures to see, are you there? Are you not there? Are you there? Are you not there? Okay. And they are very difficult to soothe. And this is also a strategy for maintaining proximity. So if I, when I'm upset, if you come and you do respond to me and I continue to protest, it keeps your attention on me. Mm. I'm afraid that if I let my guard down, that's when you'll go away because I've internalized that you go away from me and I assume it's somehow my fault. Mm. Right. So I'm going to keep batting at you even when you give me what it is I need and want.
1: Yeah. And you're not, probably not sure. Like if you go, if they go away, like when's the next time they're going to come back? Cause if they slip back into one of those things. Okay. This is making sense. Good.
3: And then all of these things, you can see how they translate into an adult attachment relationship. So we have this caregiver child attachment relationship that we study. But what we know is that we leave eventually that core relationship to create our own family. So that partnership, um, it can be really close friends also. Like I know a lot of people who are married and their core attachment figure is not their spouse. So it doesn't have to be your romantic relationship for many and maybe most people. It is that like coupling space, but it's anyone with whom you create kind of that deep sense of emotional belonging. It's like, this is my person. Who do you go to in distress? Who are you the most honest, the most vulnerable with? That's your adult attachment figure. Um, And so what happens in your childhood has a large influence on then how you continue to relate to people in adulthood, unless you do a bunch of work. And if you do a bunch of work and you look at your past and you grieve and you process, then you can shift how you're relating because you've resolved. We call it an earned secure attachment style, which I really wish I had the authority to edit and just make it learned secure. Oh. <laughs> because Earned is such a terrible word in the which yeah. It's like, I have to like earn my lovability or my worthiness to be secure. But like, no, no, no. It just means you weren't born into it. You had to, you had to do the work. So you did the work to earn it, to be in that secure pattern.
1: Can you be born into a secure pattern? I'm thinking of like some people we know who, you know, their partner's addiction doesn't necessarily show its head until maybe their kids are like five or older. So can you like be born into a secure attachment? And then that changes because of life events? Yes. So the
3: way I see it is attachment is this flexible, malleable, ever-changing pattern you have based on the relationships you have in your life. So let's say you grew up in a secure home. You've had this partner. I mean, in a lot of um, toxic relationship dynamics, everything is fine until the commitment sets in and then it shifts. Mm-hmm. Right? And so maybe, you know, you knew him for a couple of years, everything's in fine. And then you get married and then there's this like, whoa, what just happened? Right. And that that trauma is so confusing that over time you you keep working on it, keep trying, you get sucked in deeper. You know, the cycle of abuse tends to get worse over time. You feel more lost and more exhausted. It's harder to leave. Yeah, that's affecting your attachment system. Let's say you end that relationship. Your next process of like going to find a partner or trusting people is it's got all that material in there now. Right. Like now everyone is a potential threat for a while right until yeah. maybe you've processed it more and so yes your attachment your attachment pattern can go from secure to insecure and from insecure to secure
0: wow okay how, how would you know like what I'm just trying to think so um for me I feel like I am emotionally available to my child and while my husband is is sober he, I think, has been working through what you're talking about. He's trying to earn that, mm-hmm. uh, do his work, and become more emotionally available to both me, but also our kid. So it's it would be interesting to know if you can know, like, how, what a style my son may have, or like, what are children, like, are their behaviors, or mm-hmm. how would you really know what they're, wh- yeah. where they are um, throughout yeah. their
3: life? Well, first, I want to tell you all something very encouraging, which is that attachment in the developmental study is of a relationship, not of a child. Mm-hmm. So we are looking at what does the dynamic have? Uh, what is the dynamic between one child and one caregiver? Right? Mm-hmm. you may have a very secure attachment pattern with your child and your husband may have an avoidant pattern or an mm-hmm. ambivalent pattern or a disorganized pattern. Um, oh, I should talk about disorganized. I should make sure we add that on at some point. But the um the traits are as such. So when a child has a security in a relationship with a caregiver, when they are scared is the best way to test for it. So when they are truly scared and spooked, do they seek proximity to you, maintain proximity for a little bit of time, and soothe.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So let's say you're out at the playground. Um, someone, you know, starts acting erratically, and it feels kind of scary, your child could seek proximity to you by looking for you, just turning their head and looking for you looking for eye contact, Mm -hmm. by running to you by literally clambering up your body. All of those would be considered proximity seeking. And it depends on the child's um, nature as well, because some children are more sensitive. So they're going to like, get as like almost as like, into your shirt they're gonna climb back into their uterus right those those highly highly sensitive children (laughs) versus or in your arms versus a child who's maybe just a little more um you know beyond typical maybe into just very chill right that child may be like look at you like that's fine Mm -hmm. no big deal so are they seeking proximity and then based on the contact with you are they able to soothe? And it it depends on their developmental stage and age. When we look at the 12 to 18 months old, we're talking around three minutes, which doesn't sound that long. But when you're a parent holding a crying child, three minutes is actually a long time. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So it's like, how, how, how much have they internalized that you are available to soothe them and comfort them and support them when they get hurt? That one is a little trickier because there are kids with a personality where when they get hurt, they, they, um, they don't want to be seen as incompetent. It's like they're real achievers. So mm. sometimes there's a, there's a kid who still has a secure attachment style, but with you, but when they get hurt, they kind of get mad. Mm. So I'm like, failed. I didn't want to do that. Right. That's why I say being scared is the best test. We're looking at distress. Mm. And this is true for adults. So Addiction is disassociation in chemical form. It is a leaving of consciousness, of presence, of the of awareness of one's body sensations. Um, generally speaking, uh, the folks who have struggled with serious addiction are far more likely to have had an insecure attachment experience and in specific as well, a disorganized experience. So Children who grew up in homes where caregivers were the source of threat. And that Mm. doesn't just mean physical abuse, although that absolutely applies, but it could also mean like, um, a caregiver who reads malintent into a child. Like, so the child spills their milk and a caregiver goes, what the hell's wrong with you? What are you trying to do? Mm. you, You don't even care about this stuff, right? That they're projecting intent onto a child that type of emotional disorganization, right? It it feels threatening to a child, especially because a parent is so much bigger than a child. Mm -hmm. Um, And caregivers who are, you know, in serious cycles of addiction and are acting sporadically like, you know, somebody tweaking on math is terrifying, right? It's terrifying as a grownup. It's more terrifying as a child. So what happens in that instance is I have this attachment instinct to seek my caregivers when I'm in distress. But oh shit, my caregiver is the source of my distress. I have nowhere to go. I can't run from the bear to my mother because my mother is the bear.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. All of me has to shut down. My awareness has to shut down. I have to stare at the carpet, at the ceiling. I'm going to learn to leave my body, which is going to make me far more vulnerable when I'm exposed to substances and community to diving headfirst into those experiences because they're familiar to me,
2: Mm
3: -hmm. right? It's not unfamiliar. Whereas, you know, someone else is, uh, you know, in a secure environment, they're out with their friends. Someone's like, you want to try a beer? They try a beer. They're like, whoa, that was weird, but kind of fun. It's not like the rush of relief. Yeah. That someone feels who has had that early childhood attachment trauma. It's like, whoa, I can literally just drink this and all of the things go away. Mm -hmm. This feels like the best part of how I survived my childhood. And it's not conscious like that, you know? But that's the cycle around attachment and addiction.
2: Yeah. I think that so makes sense just -hmm. from listening to like our husbands and just other people that like they just need an escape. Mm -hmm. Like that's just their escape.
1: Yeah, be as simple as because I'm thinking like my own partner, like I would his I wouldn't say that he had like a chaotic house, but I feel like he was kind of felt like like the black sheep of his family, or like he didn't fit in. So maybe just trying to escape in that way. I don't know where that fits in, but well, totally the belonging. Yeah. Need. Like we need okay. belonging. Like I am worthy. I am wanted. Like we're
3: social creatures. So if I'm growing up in a family and I don't feel like there's anyone reaching for me or wanting me or delighting me, that is an intolerable feeling for a child. That is, that is emotional neglect. Mm. And what's hard about that is that's covert neglect. And so it's hard to identify it growing up mm. because what it feels like is I'm a bad kid. I can't do anything right. What's wrong with me? And there's no other template. Like that child can't look around and go, wait a minute. This isn't how children should be treated. This is your shit, not mine. They can't do mm-hmm. that. They internalize that emotional neglect. I'm wondering, do you have any insight as to why he was the black sheep? What was it about him that the family couldn't tolerate?
1: Um, And as I was saying that, because I don't think that anyone, like, I don't think they were like, oh, something is wrong with you. Like listening from his perspective, it just seemed like he always thought like he was more different than them. He grew up in a very like religious household when he was young, so I think there were a lot of like expectations. And he's he has three sisters, and he I think you know was a little bit more mischievous and just it. I don't I don't really know exactly sure. how to describe it, but like yeah. like I don't think it was like his family was like you're terrible and things but I think it was just I think probably more than anything sometimes going to church and like hearing these messages mm-hmm. and maybe he mm-hmm. was like internalizing mm-hmm. things. I don't know I'm yeah. trying to like putting too much like guessing onto what his absolutely
3: you'd have to ask him yeah I mean, but He's I here. would say to you here's what's interesting here's other research that's interesting about attachment is that When studied in adulthood, so when interviewed, we can track based on the way somebody talks about their childhood, what attachment experience they had. So if someone has a secure experience, there is a higher volume of detail. So if I have a secure experience, I can tell you the good, the bad, the hard, everything with more nuance. It doesn't mean I have more positive things to say. It means I have more details because it, the, what's being shown there is I had a place to experience life in complex, full ways. It was safe to do that. When someone has an avoidant experience, they actually will say more positive things. My childhood was good. My parents love me. But when asked to give examples, there is a dearth of examples. They struggle to give you an example or evidence behind what they're saying. And often will say things like, I don't, I don't know. And then, and then as they start to talk through it, there's actually more negative examples than positive examples that start coming out. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: If someone has a disorganized experience, they can't even talk about their childhood without shutting down or ramping up. So it's like, they're going to begin to talk about it and they're going to have a panic attack or they're going to disassociate or they're going to like kind of start talking in ways that feel nonsensical and don't really answer the question. Mm -hmm. And then if someone has an ambivalent experience, they struggle to separate the past from the present. So they will talk about, you know, how, what was your childhood? Like, what was your relationship like with your mother around the ages of five to seven? And they'll talk about it. And then they'll start telling a story about last week. And there's kind of this sense of like, I don't really quite know what's past or present. Is that interesting? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what your husband's describing feels a bit like avoidance to me. Mm Mm-hmm like the family culture of avoidance, like what's acceptable is compliance. What's acceptable is the behavior that fits within the, the religiosity there. Um, and so if he's a feeler at all, which he probably is, yeah. uh, then he's going to have this this like struggle to fit himself within that box because his body reacts to things and he's he, it's not um, natural for him to just shut down and comply. And yeah. so- maybe they never even said anything to him but they didn't look at him as often or they didn't praise him as often right and and but he got he clearly got the message something's not right about me he got that message even if they never said it to him yeah
1: Hmm.
3: thank you for all of that that was that was awesome
0: (laughs) yeah that was great it has me thinking too like being an adult who's sorted through these things, I don't I don't know I'm like as you're talking I'm trying to figure out like what would I say the attachment style with my parents was mm-hmm. I have no idea but then I'm also thinking about am I doomed so if I'm a child it from like uh and that didn't have a secure attachment which I'm going to guess I didn't <laughs> okay. I don't
3: know um, it's about 50/50 yeah some, some say like, 60/40 secure insecure but you know half and half Half so it's not a small it's not a small percentage of people though that have secure attachments so hear that that's that's a lot of people
0: though that are entering other relationships and just I just think of this like perpetuation of of these negative things and like not loving each other and I don't know how important is it to figure out what what attachment style you're entering adult relationships into and even parenthood into. And then like, especially as you are then pairing up with someone who might also not be from a secure attachment, like how important is identifying these things to then start learning through them and changing the things for your children or just your friends? Yeah. Like
3: what, what are your thoughts? So it's, it's, it's very important that you understand the way your childhood affected you. That is very important. And I mean, I I don't know that you have to be able to say, hey, this was my exact pattern with my mom. This was my exact pattern with my dad. Like the research piece of that, you don't have to have that. But you do need to be able to say, you know, my mom really struggled to show me affection and it made me feel unlovable. Or my dad always knew how to just listen when I was feeling sad. And that was so powerful for me, or my dad was great with me until I hit puberty. And then he was really awkward with my body. And it made me feel like something was wrong with me and I was gross and disgusting. And so I, i really struggled to accept myself as a sexual being. And like, you, you do need to know the specificity of the way your caregivers related to, you, because you internalized messages about yourself and messages about emotions. And that will translate into what you do with your children. Even if it translates, I see a lot of people being like, I'm going to be nothing like my parents. So maybe they have a parent who never said, I love you. Okay. That didn't feel good. I'm going to be nothing like them. And so then with their children, they say, I love you all the time. Mm -hmm. But the child doesn't experience the opposite of what the parent experienced. They experience a parent who is so stuck in their own stuff that what's happening for the parent is taking over than what's happening for the child. Right. Mm -hmm. So what the real opposite of the never saying, I love you is being attuned to your child. So it's, I love you so much. How does that make you feel when I say that? Do you like to hear me say that? Is that how you feel loved? How do you feel loved? Right. And doing that in a way that is calm and present and attentive to the connection and not simply a reaction or an opposite perceived opposite of what happened to you. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So yeah, you got to do the work. Mm -hmm. Um, I, uh, I wrote a workbook and it's not coming out until January because it takes forever for books to get published, which is like a thing. Um, My, I mean, unless my publisher changes the date, in which case I will be very annoyed, but in theory, it's coming out in January and it's a workbook on this. It's called securely attached and it is I designed it so that the first section is helps you answer all of the questions you need to kind of think about in terms of what, what was your caregiver relationship like with each of your caregivers. And then the middle section is looking at how that, how this impact led you to the way you've related to other close attachment figures in your adult life. And then the third section is basically like, these are the traits of secure relating. And here's, here's what you can do to work on all of these things. Wow. That's
1: really cool. We'll have to be on the lookout for that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Question. So if you, so like Jessica was describing, you know, if she has a secure attachment with her son, Mm -hmm. um, then maybe her partner's is not as secure. Or if we were in a situation where the other partner is inactive addiction Mm -hmm. and not very involved, is there a way that the parent with the secure attachment can like help that child? Like overcome the Mm -hmm. so great attachment, like to try and, I don't know, balance it out or make the damage of the other attachment, not as help, not as yes.
3: Okay. Okay. So I have a few tips. One, make sure you have people that are other adults who are secure and understanding who you are processing your grief and anger and frustration and panic with make sure you are not doing that with your child,
2: mm-hmm. even
3: in little ways, right? So it's like, you need to be going to other people and getting your needs met so mm-hmm. that you can truly be a container for your child as they process their relationship to that parent. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay. not going to do this perfectly. It's not like you can go like empty out your tank fully and make sure there's no drops left. But if you do it good enough, your children won't feel the need to care for you. So we want to make sure that in this process, your children don't become parentified trying to take care of your emotional response to what's happening. The second thing is think of yourself as a witness. So your job is not to tell your child how to feel about what's going on with this other parent. It is to bear witness to how they feel about what's going on with this other parent. And to give them as much validation for what they're feeling without overwhelming them with information. So let's say you have a three-year-old, for instance, and um, you your three-year-old is having a meltdown because daddy was supposed to be home for reading tonight. Daddy promised, and he's not home. And you know, daddy is at the watering hole. He is not coming home for hours. Um, You want to breathe through your anger and your disappointment in that moment. And on a developmental level, it makes you really sad when daddy doesn't do what he promised he would do. Where is daddy? Where is daddy? I think daddy is at, um, it's funny. This is so interesting for me. The place my dad drank when I was growing up was called Piccolo's bar and grill.
1: Oh, okay.
3: So like, that's the name that just like came up in my brain. Like daddy's at Piccolo's. Right. It doesn't exist anymore. So I don't feel bad. You know, (laughs) well it won't hurt their, uh, clientele. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> um, and that, and that, why is daddy at Piccolo's? I don't know, honey. I don't know. That's something you can ask him tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously if you, if you're afraid that the, this partner is an unsafe person and like that your child asking them where they were last night would evoke a rage in your partner towards your child or towards you, um, you need to be looking at the impact this is having on your child and considering how are we going to safely leave this situation? Mm -hmm. Um, but if you know this is something that you recognize is um, needs to be addressed we're heading towards uh, a moment in which this person needs treatment or you know needs to hit some form of a bottom that they're not hitting because it's whatever again you can ask daddy but you don't you don't need to protect the person you also don't need to demonize them right your job is to answer truthfully at the developmental of the child. Now it's a 12 year old. Their dad promised that they were going to be at the basketball game. Um, and this can be moms obviously as well. I'm just, I'm speaking more to the dad thing because your podcast is boy problems. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But you know, you notice your child scanning the audience for dad and they're looking at you. Right. And you're like, You know, and you're texting him. Where the hell are you? No text back. No text back. You know, and your child gets off the court, and they're like, "Where? Where's dad?" And you're like, "I don't know. I texted three times. I haven't heard back." Well, where do you think he is? Well, I think he's probably out with his guys. You know, what's he doing with them? My best guess. Do you want my best guess? What What's your best guess? Drinking. I think so. (sighs) So sick of him drinking. That makes sense. I am too. I'm really sorry that this is something that he has not been able to figure out yet. You don't deserve this. It's not your fault. I love you. I will continue to ask him to stop this pattern.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. And, And that's, you know, and then is there anything else I can do to support you? What, how else can I help you? Do you want me to help you find the words to share to him? Or do you want to, you know, rage when we get home and throw some dish towels around the kitchen and we can have a rage party together about how painful it is that this addiction has such a stronghold on your daddy's brain. What did you, what did you three feel when I said it like that? Cause that's a very compassion based version of talking about addiction. That's not a, you know, it's not a, I don't know. I don't know the right word. Yet. But how did you feel when I said it like that? It's sad.
0: It's something that I personally think about a lot, not that particular, you know, just versions of that. Um, especially as my child gets older. Um, how would I say if something happened now? How would I say it? Um if yeah, so I think I think through those things. It's yeah, it's just like I think it's well said and I think it's supportive. I think it's honest. And I hope that in the moment I would be able to be honest and not, I think a lot of times with addiction, or at least for me, um. You know there's that codependency portion of it too where you're like I don't I want to also protect my spouse and mm-hmm. also protect my child and I don't know I I hope that in the moment I would make the right choice but I have you know pre-kid mm-hmm. dealt with a lot of my own codependency with my mm-hmm. spouse and like that's that's hard when you care about both people um
3: yeah. I, but I always imagine the addiction, like, have you ever seen those Mucinex commercials where they have like the personified boogers? <laughs> I, I imagine it as a completely separate entity. Yeah. Anybody. Right. And so I am not, not protecting someone in my life when I address their addiction, addiction or addictive behavior, I am not, not protecting them. I am protecting them because I'm addressing this, like, nasty goobery thing that is infecting them at the mo- this moment in time and i'm separating them from that and doing that like i do, so i do this with my dad with my son mostly my three-year-olds aren't really like conscious of all this yet but i have an eight-year-old mm-hmm. um, but you know he'll ask occasionally like you know why did papa carrie leave the party and i will say really gently you know papa carrie has a hard time staying places after six o'clock Because he's been drinking alcohol for so long that his brain, it like yells at him. And it's like, I need to drink. And he knows that he can't have more than one drink and then drive safely. And so he usually tries to get home so he can have more drinks. Mm -hmm. Isn't that sad? Mm -hmm. Right? It's not like your your Papa Carrie doesn't love you. Mm -hmm. That would be not protecting my dad. And that wouldn't be true. My dad adores my kids. Yeah. yeah. But I'm also not going to lie because my kids have the genes. So, you know, who will not who, time will only tell how it activates or doesn't activate for them. Right. Yeah. But they need to know. Um, we have a, I have a neighbor who just went into rehab and as soon as he went into rehab, I told my son, they're like, where, where is he? I'm like, oh, he had to go to rehab. Why? He was drinking so much that his brain had a seizure. <laughs> so wow. this is why he had to go. And, you know, how long will you be there? Well, we don't know. We think maybe 30 days, but we don't know. It depends on how, how long he's able to tolerate being there. And this is what this looks like. And I, I I do not believe in hiding these things from children. I believe in not burdening them with our emotional dysregulation around these things. Mm-hmm. But being, so I can tell my child, this is what's happening. And that is very different than,
1: yeah. <laughs> Momentary drinks ever Yeah, that's
3: a point. But I've done my work. I have grieved that. I mean, when I was in my twenties, I wrote a very dramatic eulogy um for the father I never had. Oh. And like posted it on a blog and had a whole thing. Like I grieved the reality that my dad has is, I mean, he's 75 now. He's 75. He will likely have an addiction his throughout his the rest of his life.
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
3: Mm-hmm. So I it's I can talk about it and not activate my own pain and misery be, and then spew it out on my children. And that's the goal. So if you if you can't do that, then you speak as simple as possible to your child. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how to talk about this. You're right, something is up, something is wrong. I'm going to talk to my friends about it and I'm going to let them take care of me so that I can figure out how to talk about it to you, but it's going to be okay. And I'm going to take care of it. Like I am the parent. You are the child, yeah. not in a, I'm the parent. So I know, and you're the child. And so you don't know, like, you don't have to take care of me. You don't have to parent me. I, I am going to take care of and parent you. And then you stay where they are. You know, if they start melting down and crying about it, You know, again, you stay at that child level. You're so sad he left your birthday party. You're so sad he left. You wanted him to stay. You're Mm -hmm. so sad he isn't home. This is so hard that daddy's in rehab and not here to finish this boat project he promised he would do with you. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: You're staying at the level, you're witnessing the impact it's having on them and you're responding to that.
1: Not making it about you. Mm
3: -hmm. yep and and really being cautious to not make them your witness
0: that's a good way to put it I mean I you know even even with like a outside of addiction sorry outside of addiction you know with anything getting any of your emotions Mm -hmm. you know just being frustrated or exhausted at the end of the day and I don't know how many times my son will be like it's so late and I'm just like I want to go to bed. And he's like, cuddle me or (laughs) me. And it's like, it's in those moments. It's just like, I don't want to like be frustrated because I'm very tired. I've played with you for seven hours. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. You know, but really any emotion. I think that's a, that's a good way to think about it. Of like,
3: um, just. it's okay to show them emotion but not to ask them to manage your emotions
0: yeah just to so think about I, that.
3: like my kids see me frustrated all the time and bedtime is like a thing I have twin three-year-olds it's absolute wow. anarchy and so I have nights where I mean they will see me be like all right girls I'm done that, I mean like that's very expressive but the message is still not you have to take care of me yeah I yeah. like the way to think about that yeah, you know so it's like I'm showing you it but I'm not asking you to manage it or process it and and if I if I get to a place where it's like too far, you know I'm like then <laughs> then I'll say like I'm so sorry I lost my cool. I'm gonna calm my body down and I model like this is what we do when we lose our stuff as we come back we apologize we own it and we re-regulate and redo what we were doing
1: yeah it is not helpful to not show any emotions because then they don't know what that looks like or yes, Mm -hmm. how to process it. So
3: yes, absolutely. That's, and that's, that's where the avoidant attachment starts developing is I'm not showing you anything. And then my message is feelings are intolerable or feelings are a burden or feelings are selfish feeling. I mean, it starts, it's like, they have to fill in the blank. Like, why aren't you showing me what you feel? Instead we're like, feelings are natural. They lead us to what we need, Mm, you know? Yeah. yeah
0: well,
2: how can you divorce is mm-hmm. a thing just in general, but in addiction. and, um, there's a lot of ups and downs. And so, how can you help a child? You know, I've heard often, um we're staying together for the kids or, you know, whatever it may be, like what how how do you navigate a divorce? Is it possible to navigate a divorce with like the least amount of mm-hmm. bad going on to a kid? Is there yeah. any tips on that?
3: Yeah, so I would say, this is actually a tip for both scenarios staying or going what you want to be modeling for your children is how to use your voice in a way that is kind and strong clear and honest how to communicate to other people what you need what your boundaries are how you desire to be interacted with right you're modeling that for your children the More than anything else you do as a a parent, it is modeling. Your children learn so much more from what you do than what you say, from how you live than how you tell them to live. They're watching always. They're absorbing it. So whether you're staying with someone or you're leaving with someone, you're giving them an imprint of what to do in this particular situation. So if you're staying with someone who is rapidly going through the cycle of addiction over and over and over and over again, and treating you poorly in that process and wrecking things in your family, and your home, you have just taught your children when someone treats you like shit, keep trying. Okay. Now, and again, don't hear me say that as over and over and over and over and over again. Like, yes, you're going to go through the addictive cycle multiple times before you get to a place where you can, you know create a boundary that creates some change so like I I don't I don't feel I think that that folks that have strong addictions are often some of the most tender-hearted incredibly loving creative thoughtful people on the planet because another thing that drives addiction is sensitivity right Mm -hmm. and so I like I is it worth trying to fight for that relationship yeah It's worth it if you really love that person, if there is desire there, if there is goodness inside of that person that you have known and sensed, fight for it. But if you put down boundaries and they're ignored and ignored and ignored, staying will teach your children to continue to stay in the cycle with other people they meet in their life. And they will struggle to repel that toxic dynamic in other relationships in their life because you've modeled stay and fight, stay and fight, stay and fight or stay and shut down and disappear, right? <laughs> the other option, just leave your own needs and live in a numbness of your own. Um similarly when you are in a divorce setting, you're you're modeling to your children that you can handle conflict or disagreement without defacing somebody else. So you you don't want to be married to this person anymore because being married to them has felt toxic and you're done. And I applaud you for that. But trying to angle yourself as the good parent and them as the bad parent, that's a different kind of toxicity. Please don't do that to your children. Let your children, this is where you're going to be a witness. You're going to let your children tell you how they feel and what they need. Right. And when they come home and they say, you're like, you know, how was dad's? And they're like, it's fine. He played video games the whole time. And you, you want to be like, I don't know why he doesn't do better by you. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why, because you know, you're a wonderful kid and that's a terrible way to be a parent. You're not being a witness. You're projecting your own resentment on there and you're defacing that other parent. So that child says playing video is the whole, the games the whole time you say, how'd that feel for you? I don't know. It was fine okay sounds like it was like just kind of neutral yeah did it make you sad no okay what video games did he play uh minecraft okay do you play minecraft all right like i'm gonna stay with my child where they are they come home sobbing hysterically you know Dad had his girlfriend with his the whole weekend and he promised that he was going, right? Now you're like, honey, I'm so sorry. And you're scooping them up and you're holding them and you're crying with them. And you're like, I see how much you wanted to have that connection with your dad. And then you're holding back on the desire to say, but he's a real piece of shit. <laughs> because... Your child is made of him as well. And every time you insult that other parent, you are insulting your child. Hmm. They are always going to have an identity in relationship to that parent. And so this is why you have to remember there is the parent, that other parent, and then there is the mucinex blob. Yes. And so you can say addiction is a really terrible thing. Addiction really takes people away from their truest heart and their truest desires. But you aren't going to say, well, you know, all your dad wants is to drink. He's just selfish. You've just defaced your child by doing that.
1: Yeah.
3: What, other, what other questions come up around that specifically, for, you know, that you hear around like the divorce process?
2: Um, it's more, well, I think that goes into like your kid has seen some really awful things. Yes. how do you navigate that? There's overdoses. There, There's just a lot of bad things that p- kids can see and mm-hmm. outside of addiction. So mm-hmm. how, like, how do, can you talk to us how to
3: navigate that? Yes. My favorite Mr. Rogers quote is what is manageable or no, no, what is mentionable is manageable. Okay. So what we can talk about and verbalize our kids sense can be managed and dealt with. So there let's let's say you know a child saw a parent overdose um and live or overdose and die honestly either way you're going to want to show your child that it's okay to talk about it that was that must have been one of the most terrible scenes you've ever seen yeah because daddy was laying on the floor and there were some funny things coming out of his mouth yeah and his eyes looked kind of funny. They like weren't really, they were like kind of open, but you couldn't really see him. And he was kind of shaking, his body was shaking. You're helping them understand that they can name all of these things and feel the feelings with it and process it with you. And they need to be able to tell that story with you over and over and over again in order to to make sure that they do not process it with shame and guilt. So when we go through a trauma and we we, we avoid it, It tends to get frozen with some form of like a, I should have done something. It's my fault. Um, I wasn't lovable enough for him not to do that thing. But when we are able to, this is the witness thing again, talk about something in the presence of someone who can hold the space, who can stay calm, but connected, we can begin to make meaning about what happened and how it impacted us. Now this is a lot trickier for for a child who's preverbal and has witnessed something, right? And so then what you want to know is they're going to play it out behaviorally. It's not going to be sensical. It's going to be uh, sensory. So they're they've experienced something. It felt very scary. They have no way to make meaning of it. There's no language to put to it. They can't express it or process it. Well, they're probably gonna you know punch the cat. And you have to recognize. Okay, they're they're trying to process an internal state that they don't know what to do with. And so my job is to say like, oh, you felt mad. You felt mad at the cat. Okay, I'm going to move the cat out of the way. Do you want to feel mad on this pillow? Let's feel mad on this pillow together, right? You're not trying to correct the behavior. You're trying to help them express the internal state of chaos they experienced when they saw the thing they saw.
2: I think that's so wonderful about the thing that you said about shame. And I have never thought about it that way. Like you don't talk about it and it almost becomes more shameful. And I know personally from my experience when coming out with this podcast and like, I can very now freely share that my husband is a heroin addict and (laughs) you know, X, Y, Z, like I can free and, and people's reaction most often is like, (gasps) like, Oh my God. And I'm like, no, no. Like, I want to talk about this. I want to share this because it isn't some big, bad, scary thing because Probably, you know, you know someone. we all yes. know somebody. like it doesn't have to be shameful. and mm-hmm. that that's I mean obviously that's one of our goals with this whole podcast. but I think it's so interesting that you say you don't talk about it and that attaches shame to it,
3: yeah which I think it is keeps great. It, locked, it keeps it locked in your system at like a high level of disturbance. And then the more you avoid it, the, the bigger it feels. It's kind of like this big, scary monster. You closed into a closet. And so then every time, you know, you don't want to peek at it. Or if anyone brings up anything around it, it's like panic, right? Versus, you know, if you have a caring figure who sees what it is that you experience and can help you talk about it. Um, this is not in um, at the same volume as what we're talking about in like terms of seeing like a parent in a like highly agitated substance abuse state. But one day my son and my husband were driving somewhere and um, there was this whole line of baby ducks that had been run over in the middle of the street. And like, I I don't, I wasn't in the car, so I don't know exactly what happened, but I get the sense that my husband said something like, don't look, don't look to the left. <laughs> and so my son looked to the left because that's what happens, right? Right. Um, And he saw it, and he was like, "What happened?" And it it was probably like I don't know six or seven times of him needing to narrate it. Um, but he needed to talk literally about. He's like, "They were wriggling; those the baby ducks were wriggling." Right? That's so disturbing. But like they were. He's like, "He's like, did they die?" And I was like, "I don't know. I don't know. Did, Did you you know what do you think happened, Mom?" Um, well. I'm guessing the animal control came and I'm guessing that the ones that weren't going to make it, they probably gave them something to make them die without pain to to end their pain. That's my guess, but I actually don't know, but it's really sad. He'd be like, yeah, I just feel really sad. And it's like, you know, like just process. And he, and that was the detail he kind of came back to over and over and over again um, because it was the most disturbing detail for him. And it was him experiencing this agony and pain of these little baby ducks um and relating to them right as a as another being who experiences pain um and then eventually at some point it was like it 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 resolved and now it will occasionally come up in the context of ducks he'll be like remember that one time mom and i'll be like i do yeah what are you seeing are you imagining it and he'll be like no not really i'll be like okay right but so you're 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 communicating that this is not an unspeakable experience, that we will speak our way through it. You will not be alone in it. I will help you find the words. I will let you have the feelings and I will bear witness to what is true about what you saw and
1: experienced. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, it's interesting when you said, you know, that's the thing that stood out to him. And that's probably why, I think bearing witness to them is so important because maybe the thing that we assume would be like Mm -hmm. the most traumatic or like sticking in their memory isn't that thing. And so if we're trying to tell them, oh, this is how you feel, or this is all of it, we might be missing the thing that is really like stuck with them and keeping them up that they're struggling with. So,
3: Yeah. And it's really interesting. I mean, I've been doing trauma work for a very, very long time and what get stuck you cannot predict mm-hmm. I, I you can't they're they're because it's so unique to who that person is what environment they're in what things they're taught to focus on or not focus on their nervous system how sensitive they are in what way and so you now you really want to be going how is this affecting you you know and if you're if your child's nonverbal you're just you're watching you're just watching and and remembering your your goal is not to make it all better you can't. Your goal is to be with them in their dysregulation, offering calm presence. That's it. I'm here. I got you. I feel you. I can tell you're struggling. I'm with you. I'm not leaving. I'm going to stay close. We're going to make it through. And sometimes when there's big capital T trauma, those dysregulations can be hours long.
1: Mm. Yeah.
3: Ugh, it's hard. <laughs> it
1: is hard. I feel like I've learned a lot and I, we could go on for hours more. Cause it's mm-hmm. just, there's so much. I well, love kinda-
3: you all. This is my, I mean, I'm a weirdo. Like this is what I would do all day long. If I could, is like have deep conversations about like pain and healing and how we work through stuff. So y'all are my people. Oh, that- <laughs> We all love counseling. I'm probably in like, oh I'm, I'm a support group lover, <laughs>
2: <Ooh>. <laughs> but as we kind of round, round out, like let's end on like a hopeful, your parents in recovery. How can that relationship be repaired? Yes. Like, how can we navigate that?
3: Love it. So when we talk about the parent who is, um had not struggled with substance abuse and who is bearing witness to the child as the other parent is working towards recovery, in every stage of recovery, be as honest with yourself and your child as you can about what it is you're working towards, right? So- Um, I don't know. You're on your way to treatment. I'm going to get some help. I realize I can't, I can't fight off the mucinex booger on my own. I need some help because he's really a big booger. So I'm going to go to this place and these doctors and nurses and therapists are going to try to help get this booger out of my brain so that I cannot drink or I cannot use heroin or I can not use meth, whatever the thing is. Um, and be healthy again. Okay. Now I'm back from treatment. Are you better? Are you all better? I am so much better than I was before I went. It's been 30 days since I used the Booker, and I am still going to have to do a lot more work. So I have these meetings I'm going to, I have this person who's helping me. I have Blah, 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 right? Like you're just being honest, but you're not saying I will never, ever drink again. I will never, ever use again because you can't make that promise and relapse is a part of recovery. So tactical, tangible things and then stick to it as much as you can. Like bear witness to your child's face and internalize that you don't want them to have to be on guard for your addiction anymore. You want to be the one who's on guard for your addiction so they don't have to be, right? Mm -hmm depending on their age and their personality, offer them some space to tell you the truth about what it was like for them when you were using. Because there's a trust there of you're saying to your child, you matter more to me than than the thing that used to matter. The thing that used to look like it mattered more to me than you did. Mm -hmm. And I want, I'm going to, honor the healing you need to have by giving you the space to tell me the truth so and you know not all kids are going to be ready for that right away or even have the words for it or trust the addicted the, the post addicted person to handle that well and so they might not but i'd say at some point it's like i'd like to invite you to write me a letter or tell me to my face how it impacted you when i was actively addicted to x y or z and in that somehow communicate back to that child that you have deeply internalized and grieved like if that doesn't break your heart if you aren't in a puddle of tears on the floor when your child tells you they stopped telling you that they had wet the bed because they didn't know if you would fall over or hit your head or get weird or like if that doesn't make you cry yeah are you still on something yeah. like what's happening like so, And so Oh, now, again, we're not asking them to take care of us, but we're showing them that we have been impacted by their pain. I'm so sad, buddy, that you had to go through that. You did not deserve that. And there was nothing you could have done to make me not do those things. You didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't that you didn't do things right enough. That was 100% out of your control and how brave of a kid you are to tell me that truth. And then you take that letter and you pin it to your forehead. No, not really But you pin it somewhere. Like, yeah, let that be one of the most important guides in your recovery process. Like, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to give to my kid what I didn't have in the best way that I possibly can.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, unfortunately, kids just go are stuck in terrible situations that they can't get out of. And it's, it's really yeah. sad to navigate this. And so I am just like really, really hopeful that this podcast can help someone to help them navigate this and and children, maybe children who grew up with addiction, who couldn't talk to anybody who still haven't talked about it with anybody. They can find some like comfort in this. and, and, and it, cause that that's my hope for this.
3: So yeah. I'm
2: not
1: sure. Are there Betty Ford centers everywhere? Do you all know this? I think there's only one like actual like, called Betty Ford. Okay. Center. So that's what? in Denver somewhere or the Oh, spring. well then. Okay, yeah. Somewhere yeah. in Colorado,
3: but that is an amazing resource for kids. They have a whole program for children of parents who are addicted or in recovery either way, and they go through and help give kid language and they do it in cohorts. So like your kids will be with other kids having this experience of talking about it. I don't know of any other resources. I guarantee there are more than just that, but where if you can find a space or a clinic that is focused on addiction and helps children process it with other children, that's also huge because there's such a stigma, right? So right. helping kids see like, oh, your dad also drinks. Your dad also does heroin. Your right. mom also, yep.
1: Yeah, and I misspoke. There might be actually more yeah. better more More and I think some of them have combined like Hazelden and Betty. It's like now the Hazelden Betty Ford, okay, Minneapolis, I think. But yeah, now we can, but I would,
3: I would start there. Like, if if you're a parent and you're like, I really want to get more resources, like, and I'm listening to Eli and I'm like, yeah, that all sounds great, but like, how the heck am I going to remember to do that or say that or that doesn't feel natural? That would be a great place to start. Look up Betty Ford clinics. Look into where they have locations. And then if they don't have a location near you, call them. Say, hey, what do you know is available in Nebraska or in Kentucky or wherever? Because they're going to know what else is out there and help guide you to the places that are most adept at helping you as the partner and your children as the survivors on the other side of, you know, the the addicted cycle. Yeah.
2: Well, and I
1: think... Oh, oh, I was, I was just... going to say, are you going to say Alatot and Alatine? Oh yeah. No, I wasn't going to say that. Oh but...
2: yeah. There's Alatot and Alatine. I know that, that are kind of like in the AA vein mm-hmm. so that that can be communities for
1: kids to connect with. Yep. I was going to say, if people wanted to learn more from Eli, mm. <laughs> like tell us where they can find you and hear more you about all are, it. You all are making me inspire that I don't do enough
3: on this topic. Like I haven't done much on this topic. I need to do more on this topic. But um, so you can follow me for any general, like how do I create a secure attachment with my children? And how do I address this issue, issue or that issue on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at attachmentnerd. Or the way I would really love for you to connect with me is to go to my website, which is attachmentnerd.com. And I have on there specific guides. So you can like purchase a guide on... How to be a secure parent or a guide on how to create a deeper closeness with your child or how to deal with couples conflict. So I have a whole guide on that. This might be a really helpful one for your audience. Um, there's like nine or 10 videos and I go through like, these are the rules for fair fighting. Um, this is, this is an area where you want to, you know, really express your vulnerability in this way or that way, like helping couples get to a place where they are relating through connection and not chaos and not control um but and then if you if you're like I'm an Eli fan I kind of just want to like be in the gang you can join what I call my nerd herd which is <laughs> a membership it's not very expensive it's like $29 a month and you get access to everything I do and I do a live class every month so every month you can hop in with me ask questions connect and there's like a village section too where you can share and ask questions. And I try to do video responses to questions so that you can have some interaction. Um, and my goal, my long-term goal is that there would be this place where parents who are feeling isolated and kind of out on their own and are like, I don't know how to do this. My parents did to do it for me. And like my community doesn't know how to do it, that you would have this virtual space where you can come together, meet people who are close to you in your area, get information. And all of my videos from social media are up there and organized, which is very helpful <laughs> because- you start streaming through my Instagram page, you're like, I I'm looking for some, how do I find what I'm looking for? But when you get on the ship, you can like say toddlers and all my toddler videos pop up or okay. teens, all my teen videos. Um, so yeah, I'd love for you all to come hang out there. And if anyone cannot afford, so we kind of have like a general message for anyone in America, we say, if you are Medicaid, um, qualified or you're on Medicaid, email me at hello at com. I will get you in the membership. I don't want anyone to not have access um, and then if you're overseas and you're like, there's no way I can afford that same thing. Just email me, talk to me, we'll figure it out. Like everybody deserves a village. That's
2: awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. That. Well, this was Eli. Great. Thank you. That was like amazing and better than I like even dreamed it to be. Yes, <laughs> and really. you're probably gonna see like a Katie McCone-Jones come through because I'm the one about the relationships is uh calling <laughs> my name. I love it. Yes. <laughs> I would love that. awesome. Well, Eli again, thank you so much, everyone. Please go follow her on all of her things and keep coming back. Thanks for spending time with us. We hope this story has helped you better navigate yours. Don't forget to subscribe so we can meet you here next time. If you enjoyed this episode, spread the love by rating or reviewing. Need more support? Join our online community by visiting us at boyproblemspod.com. Whatever you do, keep coming back.
1: We're not licensed professionals. We're here to share our lived experience. So take what resonates and leave what doesn't.